0: APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles and today's episode is an exciting one. It's a conversation with two doctors you've probably heard of. Host Susan Bigger is talking to Adjunct Clinical Professor Brett Sutton, Victoria's Chief Health Officer, and Dr Jeanette Young, Queensland's Chief Health Officer. We've invited these two prominent doctors to talk about their experience of being suddenly thrown into the spotlight because their job is key to communicating about and advising on a global health pandemic. Both Jeanette and Brett are essential leaders and decision makers in our ever-changing health crisis. We're sure they have a lot to share about the challenges, rewards and unexpected celebrity status. Let's go to the conversation with Susan Bigger. Thanks Tash, let's meet our guests.
1: I'm Brett Sutton, uh, Victoria's Chief Health Officer.
0: I'm Jeanette Young,
2: I'm the Chief Health Officer for Queensland. Brett and Jeanette, welcome.
3: And thank you for taking the time to speak with us out of what we're certain is a very hectic schedule. So can you begin by telling us about your pre-pandemic career? How did you end up as Chief Health Officer? Let's start with you, Brett. I know you've worked in a number of different places, including Afghanistan and East Timor.
1: I came out of medical school really not being clear what my path would be. Did lots of locum work. Um, that was mostly in emergency departments, and that ended up being a 10-year career of a lot of satisfaction and um, became Deputy Director in uh, a small ED in northwestern Tassie, uh, but also worked in the UK, um, New South Wales and Victoria in, in EDs and interspersed with that. And then for a period of years afterwards, uh, I did international development and humanitarian works. And that really made me think about public health uh, in terms of the, the impact that the work in East Timor in particular really saw a, a profound systems change. So I returned to Australia In 2010, really with a view to exploring public health, and and went for a job um, in the Victorian Department, and have been here uh, ever since. So, really started in communicable disease, uh, you know, in a team leader role, and then as a manager. And then seeing the 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 breadth of work that a chief health officer can do across environmental health and food safety, uh, and and the broader social determinants um, for health and welfare populations was. Uh, something that I was also passionate about. So I put my hand up and here I am.
2: And, and so, Jeanette, could, could you tell us a bit of your story? Around 15 years ago, I was at the PA Hospital in Brisbane as the Director of Medical Services there. And the Director General of the day asked me to come into the department because we'd had a little bit of an issue in Queensland with a, a hospital in Bundaberg and she wanted my knowledge of how hospitals work. So um, she came in, I enjoyed it, I then applied for the job when it was um, formally advertised and was appointed. But it wasn't for my public health expertise. The role included a whole lot of other things that I did have expertise in. I had none in public health. Um, That was about a quarter of the role. So I had to get up to speed in that area. And then here, 15 years later, that's the most important part of the job. So it's been quite a journey. I've been very lucky that I've been allowed to go through that journey and pick up all of those skills along the way.
3: Brett, can you explain what the role of the Chief Health Officer would have been
1: traditionally? It was across really three pillars of health protection, food safety, environmental health and communicable disease the the challenges were possibly more in the environmental health space. There's lots of people get exposed to hazards and bushfire smoke and cancer clusters and the like. Um, Communicable disease is a little bit more straightforward, um, but then pandemics is another ballgame, as uh, we've all come to recognise.
3: Jeanette, did your role also have a strong public health focus?
2: It was, I did have a significant focus and it had increased over those 15 years on public health and on communicating with the public generally about a whole range of threats and issues, so communicable disease ones, but other ones as well. So I'd had that experience and I was around for the swine flu pandemic in in 2009, so H1N1, which just seemed like a warm act act for this one, but was really good in terms of having been around and understood what worked and didn't work. And then I could apply that in this one.
3: And and so what happened for you when the pandemic began? Can you uh, retrace a little bit of those steps uh, back a year ago and how your role changed?
2: So we first started discussing this new virus that had been found in Wuhan in China early on in January when we had the bushfires and we were needing to release um, P2 masks out of the national stockpile because of the fires. And the uh, chief medical officer from the Commonwealth said, well, we might have to be a little bit careful because there's this new virus. So that was 3rd of January. That we first got the first hint, and then it just escalated so quickly.
3: And then we had our first case in Australia t- towards the end of January, Brett.
1: That first notification in Australia was in Victoria on January 25. I was on on my holidays at that time. I returned to work the following day. Um, I think I think we already had a sense in January that this was not an ordinary pandemic. Um, you know, the early information, even in January, was um, very significant, and I think I had a foreboding sense uh, then that we were looking at something um, not aligned to 2009 pandemic, which, you know, in the end was like a severe seasonal flu. We've ended up with something that uh, has really disrupted the world um, more than any other pandemic for 100 years um, And, you know, the early signs were there, severe clinical disease, high case fatality rate uh, when you compare to, you know, influenza.
2: So here in Queensland, i declared the public health event of um, statewide significance, which is my ability then to manage resources and processes across the whole state. And I'm very fortunate I've got that ability in Queensland. What then happened is that another person was appointed to take over my normal role as a Deputy Director-General responsible for the broader prevention um, division in the department so I could focus my energies and time on responding to the pandemic. So that happened in January. So I'm no longer the person doing the things that don't have a statutory requirement for a chief health officer to do them. So where there is still that requirement, such as licensing private hospitals, certain drugs and poisons, there are various things in Queensland that under statute the chief health office has to do. There's no statutory requirement. Someone else is doing my job. So about 75% of my normal role. So I could really focus on the pandemic.
1: So your roles changed and your days probably changed. days became pretty busy right from that late January period. We knew that there would be a window of opportunity to try and get as much planning and preparation and system preparedness uh, in place uh, in in January, February before, you know, we all expected an uptick in cases. Little did we know the kind of measures that would be put into place, um, but we really did see it as an opportunity to um, work as hard and as fast as we can, especially with clinical services and primary care to try and set the policy guidance. And so there were really long days in that that space. But again, with a a bit of a foreboding sense about what that would mean as numbers continue to increase, knowing that we would need to scale up and surge and that it would just get busier and busier over time.
2: Yeah. The best thing that we have here in Australia is AHPPC, the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, because that's all the chief health officer's from around the country and the chief medical officer from the Commonwealth getting together and we just talked through everything. Because the problem with this pandemic, a lot of problems with this pandemic, but one of the major ones is it's not the one we were really preparing for, which is another flu pandemic. It's a coronavirus one. So all of a sudden there were these additional complexities and we have as well on AHPPC a whole lot of experts who are really true experts, international experts, working together together from right at the start and that made all the difference.
3: When did you begin to do, for instance, daily press conferences? That's when you probably became a more familiar figure for many of us.
1: I think it was in February into March. Um, Certainly our our peak in the first wave was in March, Um, but February uh, had had a strange few weeks of virtually no cases. Um, So wouldn't have been standing up then, but for every new case that was notified, um, you know, myself or the minister uh, uh, with me uh, stood up to explain, you know, what the circumstances were, what we were doing and, and uh, what the plan was going forward. Jeanette, the media has probably been a part of your daily life too.
2: The media has been brilliant in getting information out and getting um, all of the, the protocols and what people need to do and the responses out there. But it's even more important that we can hear it from someone like Brett. And he is great. And he and all the other chief health officers have just shared information and the real details so that we could work out what it meant for our own jurisdiction. So when we had to do things at our own border, when we had to do responses about, you know, understanding um, their, their position and what control they've got and therefore what it can mean for us. Because as a country, we not only stopped... Um, the virus coming in through our international borders, but we could also stop it coming in through domestic borders. And that meant there was just one, you know, reduce the risk for us that we could work that through. And we could only do that because people shared information every step along the way when Brett had his outbreaks, he would share that information when Kerry Chant had her outbreaks in New South Wales and now more recently we've also been getting it from New Zealand which has made an enormous difference.
3: Can you tell us a bit about some of the kinds of decisions that you had to make?
1: One of the really critical decisions for Victoria early on and it was a, it was a decision for Australia ultimately um it was around the Formula One Grand Prix that was uh an all-nighter that I recall, Uh, lots of conversations with the Australian Grand Prix Corporation and Formula One representatives, the Minister and others, um, really about the cancellation of that event um, uh, because it it had planned to go ahead. There were still major mass gatherings that were taking place in Australia and we were at that tipping point around um, whether it was reasonable to continue um, with that and lots of fluid circumstances. There were... Um, uh, significant upticks in cases across Europe. Obviously Italy was already showing uh, the early signs of a very significant pandemic. And so we're all reflecting on that across Australia, but that was a, a really critical decision um, made late in the piece, um, but it, it really did need to be made and uh, it ended up being the kind of template for cancellation of mass gatherings that became, you know our approach in Australia shortly thereafter was when as as um, HPPC came together as, as chief health officers and said well we should have a limit uh, on outdoor mass gatherings uh, and indoor gatherings and that's uh, when the 500 came in so we were moving through that but that was really the critical decision around the fact that we probably couldn't tolerate uh, mass gatherings at scale um, going forward. Jeanette what's an example of an important decision that you made early on?
2: I think it was really, really important very early on a decision was made nationally that we would try to limit the number of spokespeople because it would make it very, very confusing and the messages weren't clear. I mean, I think people because of how we managed it, we tried to get out clear messages, but that was by working it through together and sorting out what the best message was. We didn't have a rule book. We really and truly didn't that we could just say to people, here we are, here we go, um, this is what we've got to do. We didn't have that. So therefore, we needed to have clear messaging and clear spokespeople. And that was a bit difficult early on. Here in Queensland, I know there, there were lots of other people who wanted to be out there talking about um, what was happening I just said you just can't because we've got to get our messaging right and if you say something even though I understand it's not really different and it's absolutely fine the subtleties will be different and people will pick up on that and we'll end up getting confused.
3: So Brett, when you're that one spokesperson like like Jeanette is talking about, that that core messaging, you're building a relationship and you're building trust with us. You're also becoming a bit of a celebrity and that is presumably good and bad?
1: The core messaging was absolutely fundamental to um, bring people along the journey, to holding them on a journey, a journey that we needed to keep them on for the long term in order to claim that final victory. Um, difficult victory and um, and by no means, uh, again, without all of the harms that have happened on the way. I do think that the trust that you can establish um, is a really critical component of that. That means being consistent, uh, but it also means being honest, uh, admitting to mistakes, admitting to uncertainties, um, apologising where you need to apologise, recognising where things have gone awry, um, so that when you have to say those difficult things, that people recognise that you are a straight talker. Um, there will always be those individuals who who just frame you um, uh, in a particular way. Again, I think I, I need to set that aside. That that's just a, a feature of being um, central to policy decision, critical policy decision making. Um, the the celebrity that kind of followed. Um, is a bit of a comical byproduct, if you like, to the extent that I think it reflects um, the trust that I engendered in in many people. Fantastic, um, but it was by no means an objective in and of itself. You know, I found it a bit strange. I found it very strange. My family found it very strange. Um, but you know, we've seen it play out in public health figures across the world, and I think that's what happens when you're the key decision maker in really intimate and um, critical components of of people's lives the, the flip side is it comes with all of the vitriol of being in that frame as well again not, neither here nor there um, with respect to the decisions that you have to make you, you just have to put it in the um you know it is what it is basket uh, which is hopefully what I've done has it been hard for you Jeanette
2: Yeah, I did get some pretty nasty death threats, which were a bit awful. Um, But the response from the Premier, from police who then protected me and put in place um, protections, and indeed from 99.9% of Queenslanders was just fantastic. And again, it showed that there were some people who felt so harmed by some of my decisions that um, they went to that extent, which was just, Awful to think that anyone thought that there wasn't a way um, to work through whatever it was that they felt they'd been put in, that their way of doing it was to, to threaten the, the Premier and, and myself Did that. That was difficult, but the amount of support I got was overwhelming and that more than compensated for those little niggles in the back of my mind about those people who felt so threatened that they needed to to do that. So that was difficult. I mean, it is um, lovely. I do get recognised in the street and every single time the people who come up who recognise me have been absolutely lovely and wonderful. So that's been nice. It
1: really has been. I mean, I'm stopped in the street now for selfies and all kinds of reasons. Um, and I was at Bunnings a couple of months ago and a guy said, you look a lot like that. And I, and I just nodded and said, I am that guy. I'm that, anno- I'm, I'm that annoying guy on, on TV that you see every night. Um, and so that that's how I introduce myself now. I, I'm the guy standing next to the Premier. Um, Uh, you know most weekends.
3: Obviously you've been making decisions your whole career but suddenly to be making decisions that um, were so important for so many people and probably that were scrutinized by other people quite closely and maybe particularly health practitioners?
1: Yeah absolutely look they they weighed very heavily on me at the time they still do Um, but I think you know I reminded myself that uh, my my motivations were always with a single intent uh, to protect the health and well-being of Victorians. You know that's that's kind of um, uh, tattooed on my mind and and has been right through. Um, and also to be open to the ideas of uh, my team, uh, many other experts, many other uh, people who provided commentary, and there were lots of infectious disease and public health colleagues. Um, at that time and subsequently uh, who provided that either uh, solicited or unsolicited uh, advice that um, I've been open to. And uh, there have been many occasions where I've also had to block out noise and uh, recognise when there was um, uninformed commentary or that it was driven uh, ideologically without a good evidence base. But there were lots and lots of inputs that were Uh, founded on expertise and, you know, evidence that I hadn't yet come across. And so, um, yes, I was making the final decisions, uh, but it was with with lots and lots of people uh, backing me uh, or uh, suggesting that that was a reasonable and and proportionate approach. Um, But there were always going to be those who opposed and there were always going to be those who had a vociferously different opinion. um, And you just have to ride with that. You know, you roll with the punches um, but recognise that you're, you're doing it with the best of intentions and with uh, as much evidentiary and scientific rigor as you can muster.
3: So, Brett, you make it sound very easy to roll with the punches when you're making decisions that are unpopular. I'm sure it it can be challenging too on a, both a pro- personal and a professional level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you get torn apart over this stuff. Um, I continue to. Um, you have, to be really, you have to be reasonably gentle with yourself about the fact that this will always happen when you're at the pointy end of decision-making. Uh, there is no path of least resistance uh, that makes everyone happy. Uh, or as I, I, I think I tried to reinforce early on in the pandemic in my public messaging, there's no path of no harm here. There are decisions to be made uh, that will affect thousands upon thousands of people Uh, and cause harms um, but against an alternative that you are trying to weigh up that looks more harmful, looks more dangerous to health and wellbeing, um, but there is no path that you can take in which people are unaffected financially, uh, with job security, with social uh, engagement and the isolation um, that ensues from those decisions, the psychological and, and mental health burden of those decisions. That was always going to happen. Um, And so you really just had to remind yourself that uh, um, those accusations that harms would arise were not invalid. They were always going to arise. You were just trying to find the the least worst pathway uh, possible.
0: Are you enjoying this conversation as much as me? Well, there's plenty more in our archives. For example... In an episode called, How is COVID changing the experience of healthcare from both sides of the bed? Professor Harvey Newnham has this to say about how people are responding to the pandemic.
1: The staff have really risen to the task. There's a job to be done and they get there and do it despite whatever the constraints are. So that's been, uh, I think, amazing to uh, witness. Uh, Imperative to look after themselves and the others around them. You're trying to make sure that uh, uh, you're not going to spread the virus to either your working colleagues or your patients, or for that matter, your family, your friends, your loved ones, anyone you know who's immunosuppressed that you might have any contact with and makes me proud to work with them all.
0: To find this episode and more, subscribe by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player or going to the ARPA website. And let's get straight back to Jeanette, Brett and Susan. So you've both raised some
3: challenging issues from an ethical perspective, what were some of the most difficult decisions?
2: Yeah, there were some really difficult ethical issues there. And some of them I really did not like at all. And I felt very, very uncomfortable. So the clinicians here in Queensland did an amazing piece of work about the ethics of when people would have to be refused care because we became overwhelmed. And I just didn't want to go there because my view was let's get ourselves in a situation that we will never have to make those ethical um, decisions, whereas they felt more comfortable having done the work and having it there available. Um, So that that was an interesting dynamic because I really and truly did not want that um, being worked through and I did not want the community to know we'd done that because then they would be thinking, well, if you're doing that work, that must mean you think it's going to happen. Whereas my view was, let's absolutely make sure it doesn't happen. And we were so fortunate that we never ended up in that situation. I can be blunt about it now, because we've got a vaccine that's just fantastic. So whereas I know that there were some clinicians out there who just felt a lot more comfortable once they've done that at work. So I think that was a big one. I just did not want to ever get into the ethics of who we denied care to. So that was the biggest one. I mean, some of the other ethical issues, people tried to turn into ethical issues that I didn't think were ethical issues. When we had to close the border to New South Wales, we always made it very, very clear that anyone who urgently needed care, of course, they could immediately come to Queensland. We weren't putting up a, a wall and stopping people. They could. But some people got the message that they weren't able to, which we just worked through very carefully to make sure. So there was never an ethical issue there. We were always going to provide essential health care to anyone, no matter where they were who needed it. And we continue to do that. We provide that care to people from overseas who just can't get it where they are, for instance, in Papua New Guinea. So we manage that, those sorts of things.
1: You know, the challenges for people were really substantial and so there were human rights issues at play in in each and every element of those decisions around uh, what it means to be sovereign, what it means to engage with um, uh, our loved ones, our family, our friends. Uh, what it means to be constrained in our work uh, to lose jobs to be financially under pressure uh, they they are all um, you know they are all uh, ethical dimensions in those in those decisions uh, and they they have to be made against a, a counterfactual that hasn't come to play you know it's very hard to make an argument that you're saving tens of thousands of lives when people say but what where are these tens of thousands of lives that you say would be lost? Because um, it hasn't happened. You you point to other countries, uh, but that's not as convincing for people. Um, And uh, again, you know, we're we're, um, in a situation where um, the very thing that you achieve of not having people uh, ultimately dying in their hundreds and hundreds um, for days and days on end um, is uh, is the thing that you must avoid uh, but as you avoid it um, the the reality of that um, fades away in people's minds and they and they think that all of those things that you put into place that were really hard decisions are, are not really required you get challenged on every single component of um, of those you know behavioral and other restrictions Uh, you know masks uh, is a case in point keep prosecuting the argument that it's a kind of insurance policy that it's a small impost for the individual um, but you get down to very low levels of transmission and the questions arise again so why do we have this well because we don't know what we uh, we don't know what we prevent and and having um, some of these interventions in place uh, are critical for that.
3: Many of us Australians would describe the pandemic as having been relentless, and when we think about our leaders, people like you, people who have to face the press and the pressure every day, I wonder how um, how you've handled your own stress and well being in the face of that relentlessness over a year, more than a year. Well,
2: um, I remembered the previous pandemic which lasted, the H1N1 swine flu pandemic, which lasted six months, and it nearly killed me, literally. I just lost so much weight. I just, oh, it was awful. And at the start of this pandemic, I realised very early on this was going to be much, much, much worse than that previous pandemic. So I sat down with my husband and we worked out a way forward. So the first thing, I took my own advice. I'm not a great exerciser, I'm scared to admit. Despite being the Chief Health Officer and promoting exercise and healthy living, I've not been great, so I thought I needed to do something. So I now do 30 minutes exercise, first thing when I get up each morning without fail. Even if I desperately don't want to get up and want to sleep in for another, I just do it, and it's made enormous difference i should take my own advice years ago i sleep well um i'm so much better i feel so i would recommend everyone 30 minutes exercise every morning is really really good so i did that then also um my husband decided he he was on pre sort of retirement leave deciding if that's where he wanted to go and and he just went No way. He and I, we're not doing a pandemic together again. It was so awful last time. So he's just supported me enormously, and that has made a big difference. And I don't know if you can organise this one, but I would strongly suggest it. No child under the age of 18. That has helped our children are older this time around, and that's made all the difference.
3: So it sounds, Jeanette, like you definitely learned from your first pandemic and applied that to this situation. Brett, what about you? How how do you handle your own stress and well-being when you're in the spotlight?
1: You know, I grew up as a pretty, as a painfully shy and rather anxious, somewhat obsessive, compulsive kid. Um, I went through my teens and 20s trying to and actually transforming um, that uh, um, way of living, if you like. So I, I really worked through different ways of thinking that made me um, more extroverted, not particularly anxious about anything, um, and uh, and then becoming a student of Buddhism and uh, meditating for um, the last few decades has really enabled me to find a way to be calm in the fray. Um, working in emergency medicine for 10 years is also Um, a really good way to uh, find a path of um, uh, being calm in the chaos. And in a way, you know, emergency work with airway breathing circulation as, you know, your uh, priority interventions for a a really uh, critical case, it it is the same in critical decision-making in public health. Yes, there's a whole lot of noise. There are really difficult things to juggle, but there's still a hierarchy of priorities you have to work through. The most critical decisions, um, again, supported by a team of really uh, competent individuals. Lots of um, uh, information and analysis that's informing those decisions, and you still work your way through it from, from top to bottom. Uh, and so I could I I didn't get overly anxious about that. My well-being struggle, and and it has been a struggle really through um, August, especially was that there was not a moment uh, of any day for weeks and weeks on end when I wasn't thinking about um, the people who were dying, the many, many people who became infected in our second wave, um, and anything else that I, my team, the government could do uh, to manage that. Um, We absolutely got to a point, you know, with a very severe lockdown, that it was pretty clear that there's no more that you can do. You have to let it Um, play out over time, Um, but the ruminations on every little decision around that, knowing that more people would die and that um, there was this kind of unfettered uh, transmission across um, Melbourne in particular, was a really heavy burden. Um, So I would say, um, you know, I took the lessons from my wife, try and eat as well as you can, sleep as well as you can, uh, take some time out in your day to exercise Um, and take some time out to meditate or you know if it's not meditating handing your phone over to someone for half an hour going for a walk whatever it might be but trying not to ruminate on um, uh, everything that was you know part and parcel of a really long day and they were and they were super long days they were 16 plus hours um, of scheduled stuff let alone getting through the emails and the text messages late into the night Um, so you know I'm I'm pretty free about saying there was there was some really significant struggles there. Part of the solution is to recognise that um, uh, you're not at your best, that um, it feels like an uh, inescapable burden. Um, the love and support of your family, there, there's no substitute for it. Um, the same for my colleagues. Uh, they were uh, unbelievably supportive. Lots of people reaching out to you, um, but also... Recognising that you need to vent, you need to reach out to others, um, and I did uh, speak to a psychologist for all of those reinforced messages around self-care. Partly how to compartmentalise work so that it's not with you twenty four seven. Partly around just being able to vent uh, through all of the struggles um, that you have. You know, there was a kind of grief in being with my family and not being with my family psychologically. You know, putting my kids to bed. Um, but my mind being elsewhere, so that you know, I felt I felt awful as a father. Um, I felt like I was with my children, but was absent for weeks and weeks on end. And the reality was um, that that was kind of true. I was I was psychologically absent. But in reaching out for support, um, I really found mechanisms to be able to uh, link back in, look after myself, and um, find some space to to connect with uh, loved ones. That's a really critical thing for us as human beings, let alone public health professionals. And, Jeanette, if you're comfortable talking about it, what was it like for your family
3: with the pressure you were under?
2: Um, it's, they've been really supportive. I'm sure at times that they have struggled um, in how to help me, but they've helped me enormously. Just to have a meal on the table when I get home at night is such a Um, That is so important. As I say, 10 years ago, I didn't have that. (laughs) This time around, I, I get fed, I get looked after, And I have someone to debrief with. I did say when we had the first teleconference, the first serious one of AHPPC, and I understood the seriousness of what was going to face us, my husband was away that weekend um, up the coast, and I just rang him up and said, you've got to come home immediately. I can't do this without you. I've got to talk to you. And having that person to debrief, because he's a microbiologist, So he just understands and it's been so good to be able to talk to him and work through my ideas with him because he's so um, beautifully blunt but so lovely while he does it. So he'll say, oh, don't know about that idea. Do you want to rethink that one? Or he'll go, yep, you've got to do it. So I've been really, really lucky having him there. And, Brett, what about for your family?
1: It's very hard to talk about, them without getting emotional because you know they really are they really are the rock um and the hardest bits were uh in seeing them struggle uh through various things you know there were there was there were media representatives who knocked on my front door late into the evening to ask me a question with my uh, daughter answering um the door in her pajamas. That just made me uh, unbelievably angry. And people say, you know, you get paid a lot, you know, you're a public figure, you signed up for this. None of that uh, matters in any sense whatsoever when you feel that your family's well-being is threatened. So um, that was tough. But, you know, thankfully, uh, we don't have a TV. Um, neither my wife nor I are on Facebook. So that kind of took out half of the commentary um, that impacted on us. And, you know, we got to uh, look at the funny bits, uh, if you like, of my life with um, the celebrity merchandise and, uh, and, you know, funny stuff on TikTok and, and Twitter um, that kind of made light of um, pretty dark days. And so, you know, we, we focused on the stuff we need to focus on and uh, distracted ourselves from some of that broader stuff. But again, our local community were fantastic. My wife's friends were fantastic. And you just need to kind of connect in with them to the extent that you can, uh, in order to find that support.
3: Yeah, it's a real reminder that this pandemic uh, touches all of us, doesn't it? Regardless of what level of society we're in,
1: it's it's really important to recognise that these were universal experiences for Victorians. So those who were in the response had their own challenges, um, but we, you know, we were all faced with the cancelled parties and, you know, the 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 twenty five k limit was. Um, was just short of where my mum lived. So, you know, couldn't visit her at home. She couldn't visit me at home. My brother lost his job in the first uh, lockdown, um, really as a consequence of, uh, you know, some of the decisions I made. So all of that um, affected us personally, but the, the solutions, if you like, were, were uh, lessons for ourselves as much for everyone else. Yeah, we've all learned so much. You must be really proud of how we've gone.
2: I think people throughout Australia have just stood up to the challenge. They've just done it brilliantly. The other day was not that long ago, you know, beginning of January, and I had to go ask them to go into three days of lockdown because we had the first um, time a variant of concern had got out into the community. And I just can't believe what happened. They just did it. I I made this statement, did a, a press conference with the Premier And then I drove back to my office, which is not that far away, and I looked at, you know, and everyone had a mask on, every single person. I thought, how did they hear that? How did they know to do that immediately? And it was just wonderful to see. And just the response from people has meant that we've managed this. There's been very, very, very little, if any, pushback at all, and I've just been astounded by it. Normally you try and get messages out there and you might get a few people responding. But here, time and time again, people just did what was asked of them and they did it with such good grace. It was just wonderful. And I think that's what's the difference. And I really think that's why Australia has done so well compared to other countries that should have done equally as well as we have have done, who started off in the same position we started off with the same policy parameters but then lost their way, whereas really and truly we, as a nation, have done really, really well, and that's due to the people. I mean, you can have as many policies as you like, but if people don't follow them, it's irrelevant.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much pride I have for what Victorians have achieved, you know, collectively. it It is a gargantuan task to have millions of people Doing the right thing uh, in order to um, uh, to get the public health outcome that we were looking for, but you know we'll have other other challenges where we'll all need to act in concert to to um, get the right outcome. So uh, I think it puts us in good stead that our community has kind of been forged in uh, real struggle, um, but we've got a we've got a sense that collectively we can do a lot.
3: Yeah, absolutely, we can do a lot together and with leaders like both of you, I think we've got a great future. So thank you so much for this conversation. What insight, what honesty,
0: we really appreciate it.
2: It's great to be involved in this discussion today.
1: My pleasure, thanks both.
0: Very inspiring people. And that wraps up this episode of Taking Care. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear what you think and you can tell us by emailing communications at opera.gov.au. Please share and subscribe to this podcast to hear the latest episodes and see previous ones. Just search for Taking Care in your podcast player. See you next time.